Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We are so thrilled to be back after taking a couple weeks off for our trip, our No Magenta Line adventure. If you haven't already checked this out, be sure to go to Social Flight's YouTube channel. Just go to uh, YouTube and search for one word, Social Flight, and you will get to see our No Magenta Line adventure where we went with no destination and just wandered around and got into some crazy adventures with Jake, Ben, and I. It's definitely worth watching, and I'll just say it involved everything completely unplanned from uh, cliff diving to cave exploring to jumping out of airplanes. It was it just it never ended, and uh, uh, well, unfortunately, it did end, and that's why we're here tonight. But fortunately, we are here with Robert Scratch Mitchell tonight, and so uh, we'll get started with him. And uh, just before that, want to give you a couple other tips. First of all, uh, if you are going to Air Venture, keep in mind that is now only it's less than two weeks away before we'll be in Oshkosh, and hopefully some of you will be in Oshkosh as well. And we will be running Social Flights Snag Some Swag Challenge, just as we did last year. We are coming with boxes and boxes of super, super cool things to give away. All you need to do is spot one of us, and as long as we still have something on us, we'll be sure to give it to you. So again, that's Social Flight's Snag Some Swag Challenge uh, when you are out at Air Venture. We would love to meet you in person. In addition to that, we just gave away an Aspen E5 electronic flight instrument as part of our Fly to Win Challenge, and we are now giving away a Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset. All you need to do is get the Social Flight app and just go fly. Even if you check in at just one airport during the prize period you're entered to win, uh, we just want as many people to get out there, fly, explore, and enjoy. And of course, the whole purpose of socialflight.com and the Social Flight mobile apps is to give you places to fly, destinations, things to do, and to support general aviation. Now, with that, my guest tonight I'm so excited for, Robert Scratch Mitchell is a movie producer, an actor, an air show pilot based in Vancouver, British Columbia. He is as, as a retired third-generation fighter pilot with the Royal Canadian Air Force and a former team leader of the Canadian Forces Snowbirds Air Demonstration Squadron, aviation is in his DNA. He grew up with stories of his grandfather flying Spitfires in Europe in World War II, and his father flew F-5s and T-33s, so he felt propelled to join the military. Blending his passions for aviation and the arts, Scratch's resume now includes being a character, a director, and a producer of the successful Discovery Channel series, Air Show. Scratch is a film pilot and aerial coordinator and aerial director for film and TV. Let's bring him on the line now to join us here on Social Flight Live. Please help me welcome Robert Scratch Mitchell. How are you doing tonight? Hey, Jeff. I'm, I'm very well. Thanks for having me. I am so excited. I want to say first, thank you for getting up in the middle of the night to join us because you are not here in the United States or in North America for that matter. Um, you're overseas. What's the story? Well, it's a, it's a, like everything, there's a, a tale behind it. And so my family has a really cool opportunity to come live in Europe for a, a few years, and I'll be commuting back and forth for work and play. And uh, so right now I'm actually sitting about 150 meters from the beach at Dunkirk. And we just came down here while we're waiting for our furniture to arrive. We're touring around Europe a little bit, and um, I've always been fascinated with the story of Dunkirk. And uh, we took this opportunity, so it's uh, kind of fitting that we're talking about aviation and film and everything that I've done in my background and my family. And 
get to chat, chat about it a little bit here with you. Yeah, so I mean, that, that must be very powerful given your family's background. T tell me a little bit first about your, your personal history. I, I mentioned it very briefly during the introduction, but it must make something like Dunkirk very personal experience. Yes, well, that's, uh, I, you know, as a little guy, I grew up, uh, you know, hearing my grandfather talk about it. And, and like a lot of vets, didn't go into a lot of the details, but he always spoke of the fascination of flying uh, Spitfire, in his case. And and the way he described flying in Europe, he was in North Africa, and then the latter part of the, uh, the war, he was in France as they were sort of pushing through and flying Mark 9s, Mark 14s, and 16 Spitfires. And, um, and while he, he wasn't uh, obviously involved in the operation here at Dunkirk in 1940, uh, you know, he's flown over these waters and, and I couldn't help reflect on looking up as I was in, uh, in Europe over here and imagining him in the skies above me. Wow. That's a, that's amazing. So with this family background, was it just, we were always surrounded by it. What brought you through that path? to uh, the Canadian forces and, and tell me how you landed in the, in, in the seat of that jet. Well, that's, that's it. It's just sort of with omnipresent and, and growing up with a dad flying jets in the Royal Canadian Air Force. You know, I used to, um, you know, hear the jets flying over. He, you know, I remember him walking in the door at the end of workday, you know, in a flight suit and sometimes away on a deployment comes back, you know, it gives me a, a, you know, a model to build of a jet and whatnot. So it was just, it was just always there. And I think I used to build RC airplanes and everything I imagined was about flying. And so it wasn't a real leap for me to want to go in the Air Force. Of course, as I'm experiencing now with a teenage son, there were a couple of years there where I was sort of rejected the idea and sort of pushed against, you know, the father or what have you. And I think it was in my first year of university sitting down with dad and then sitting on a, I think the kitchen counter and said, you know, tell me about this Air Force stuff again. <laughs> and uh, and I, I think I went down to the recruiting center that same week and uh, the rest is my history anyways. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Did you get to, you know, see the aircraft that he was flying at the time when you were a kid? Uh, with him flying it, you mean? Yeah, I mean, not, not necessarily go in, but I mean, you must have been right up up close and personal with the aircraft that he was seeing, he was flying. I, I was, and I was old enough that I could appreciate it. And certainly in the latter years of him flying, and so I remember him specifically, you know, watching him fly in formation with T-33s at, a, at an event in North Bay, Ontario. And I remember, um, you know, recognizing, you know, which position he was in the formation and and feeling pretty proud about that, right? And we're standing around and you're kind of thinking, hey, that's my dad up there. So it definitely left an, a lasting impression as a, as a boy. Oh, that's gotta be so amazing. Um, did, did you learn to fly in the general aviation world or was it directly with the RCAF? It was, and surprisingly, we moved around a lot and, uh, I didn't really get involved in general aviation, and I think because I, I went right from high school into into uh, university, um, I didn't have a a period much between that and joining the Air Force. I, I actually joined the Air Force while I was in in university, and I just continued on in the Air Force, and so I was initiated into that early in the in the Air Force sense. And I think before I went down to you know, boot camp, I said, I better go figure out what I'm getting into here. And I went and took about five or six flying lessons at the, the local Victoria British Columbia flying club. And, uh, and I was like, Oh, it's just all about, you know, you know, this, this, this stuff. And I was like, okay, sort of makes sense. Okay. I think I'm doing the right thing. <laughs> Cause I, I imagine that's what I was able to do, but you know, one never really knows, right. To get up there and, uh, it met my expectations. That's awesome. So, tell me then, how how does does someone without coming in, you imagine that that the people that are at that level of making it as you did the, the snowbirds, everything that you've accomplished there, that going into the uh, going into the uh, air force, 
that you would have to come with a leg up on everything, like already have ratings, already have all this. How did you push through all of that to then essentially be top of everything by, by getting into those positions? Well, I think there was uh, there's there's always a healthy amount of luck involved in life. I like to think that you know how you, can, you create your own luck a little bit, but I think I was also blessed that uh, you know I had some skills, and I think some of my understanding of aviation through RC flying um, may have helped me a little bit. I had very good spatial awareness. I did uh, gymnastics, and I was involved in a lot of sports, and so I think I had a reasonable spatial awareness of things and up and down. I think that sort of looking back helped me a little bit, but uh, you're right in the sense, as I was starting to go through pilot training, I was looking around the room and talking to guys that had commercial licenses, this and that, I'm like, oh my God. Um, and on one hand, I, I could see where that helped some of the, the people going through. On the other hand, um, you know, some of the instructors said is, when you get a guy, in my case, a guy like me, um, with a clean slate, there really are no preconceived ideas how to do things. So I was easily um, taught through that system and formulated in you know, what the, the military flying wanted at the time. And so that I was, I think I didn't have any good or bad habits coming into the door and I was able, I was a clean slate to be able to, you know, to work with. You're very, very teachable. <laughs> I guess that's the, you know, and it, you know, thankfully for me, um, you know, I was, I had some aptitudes that, that worked out because, you know, four or five flying uh, lessons probably is not enough to truly assess it, if, you know, if you're, if you have the aptitude for military flying, but I was uh, fortunate in that case it was. So what was the, the first real jet that, that you were, uh, that you were training in? Was it the, the T-33 at the time? No, it was the, the Tudor, so that's the aircraft that the Snowbirds now use, or continue to use, and they've subsequently moved on to flying the, the, the Harbor II, which is like the, the Texan II, and then, uh, and then the, the Hawk, which is flown now in pilot training, British Aerospace Hawk. And in my case, I did all my, I, gra I graduated with my wings on the advanced course on the Tudor, and then I was selected for fighters as a pipeline in terms of, that's a term we used for, uh, if you go right into the pipeline of fighters right out of pilot training, I went and flew the F-5 right away, learned a sort of baby fighter pilot course on that. Wow. What, what, now, what is, describe the Tudor to me. I'm not familiar with, the, with that particular aircraft. Tudor, we used to often say it's like a T-37 on steroids. So it's a pressurized jet, has a little more thrust to weight, and it's a side-side seated aircraft. So it was very good as an instructional airplane because the instructor, there's lots of body language and lots of being present in the same cockpit uh, aspects of, of training that works really well. And so that's, uh, we used to say it's, it was like a, a little European boxster had it was so nimble and tight and uh you just just a two-seater they used to call it a classic two-seater and a you know boxster type uh be able if you compare that to like the f-18 which a little bit more of a formula one car and so the, the tutor was a great little jet and interestingly i'm jumping ahead a little, a little bit to the snowbirds thing i've been asked many times you know what would be a really good snowbird replacement airplane i go you know that little tutor it's a magnificent airplane. It's pretty hard to beat that. I would, you know, break the molds out that, and, you know, put a wet wing in and a little more updated engine and a glass cockpit. I think you'd have another fifty-year airplane. That is that is very very cool. So, what was what became your favorite while you were serving? Your favorite aircraft? Well, I think it's it's hard not to say the F eighteen just for the the pure fact that. The, the mission was extraordinary and the aircraft was extraordinary. And I started flying them. I was a, I was a baby. I was flying 23 years old. I was flying F-18s and, and they were still, they still had a new car smell when I was flying them in the <laughs> early mid nineties. And it was just extraordinary. All the sensors and everything that was going on. And it was an air to air interceptor. It was an air to ground fighter. It had so many capabilities. And I, I love that. I can say, however, that just purely flying a classic jet in the military, the F-5, 
I don't know what it was about that airplane. I just loved flying it. And something I came to really enjoy was low-level attack. And I got to see the, the transition in the 90s and late 90s from sort of that classic Cold War low-level attack into sort of medium-level precision-guided munitions attack. And the F-5 with that tiny little wing, it, it flew like just a razor knife going through the sky and had very little effect. It was very little affected by turbulence. And so you could, even as a new student, the instructor would be always in the back saying, pick it up, because you'd just get so comfortable, low and fast, 540 knots at 100 feet, you'd be down there and be like, pick it up. And it was just <laughs> awesome. So in terms of a classic sort of uh, century series fighter feel, the F-5 was an awesome airplane. I loved it. I've heard people say that they love the F5, and I and I have to say it puts a huge grin on my face with you know 500 plus knots at 100 feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that must that's crazy. Be. So yeah, then, it's hard. so so that led at, at at some point to the Snowbirds. Tell me how that evolved. Well, this is, uh, was an interesting evolution. I. Uh, you know, I remember being a kid and going to air shows, and I remember seeing the Blue Angels specifically, and in the F-4s, and uh, later the A-7s, and uh, and then later the F-18s, and uh, and then the Snowbirds a number of times, and I'm thinking, that's a pretty cool thing. And so I've always, even as a kid, it was, enjoyed that. I was, you know, number one goal was become a fighter pilot when I joined. I said, once I get that done, then... We'll see what happens. But I really enjoyed being a fighter pilot. But something happened in my fighter pilot career. I was given a choice. Interestingly, um, you know, as I'm you know traveling through Germany and Netherlands here, I was given the choice of potentially getting the last F four exchange with Germany or becoming the F-18 airshow pilot for Canada. I was like, dang, that's a really tough one because I would really wanted to fly the F-4 again, like flying this crazy century series, um, you know, crazy locomotive in the sky. Um, but then I really wanted to do that, the CF-18 airshow act around North America. And so ultimately I settled on the, the airshow and I found that uh, something I didn't know about myself, there was a performer in me. And flying the air show and being able to share the story, tell the story of being a fighter pilot and the Air Force and, and what it's like just to fly an airplane like that to hundreds of thousands of people and meeting people everywhere at all these shows, it really invigorated me. And so I wasn't even done my tour as the F-18 air show pilot. I put my name in for the Snowbirds as for a tryout. And it... it concreted that curiosity that I had earlier on. And I said, no, this is definitely something I wanted to do. As much as I was, you know, fangs and horns fighter pilot, I was, uh, that air demonstration really invigorated me. That's fascinating. So you went, you went your entire life without necessarily tapping in to the kind of I want to. I want to be out there in front of people, uh, uh, and in that other in that other level. You discovered that really during the airshow side. Yeah, it really was. It it, it was uh, very palpable for me, and I I remember, you know, having some real interesting moments. I you know I had um, you know a couple scares in the, as an F eighteen demo bus. Uh, maybe one scare where I had a malfunction in the airplane and and uh, got a little close to the ground. And uh, had, it was a fuel transfer issue and a CFG issue, and I had to pull out of the square loop early, and the airplane didn't want to do that very well. And, um, you know, it, it became uh, you know, a very real experience for me. But also, I, I think one of the most powerful moments in my, in my life, my career, is I remember my very first air show at the uh, Ottawa Air Show, which is our national capital and our national headquarters. And uh, I was taking the, you know, getting in the jet to go do this very first performance. And I remember the butterflies. I'm like, what's going on here? I've never felt this in an airplane before. And, um, you know, and all the generals are watching the politicians. And oh, by the way, my 
now wife, then fiance, was there with her family because they're from the region. And I just I started realizing there was all this pressure on me right there to not mess it up. And I remember this going through the checks a few times. And, uh, and then I finally took the runway and I lit those afterburners. I felt the click, click, and then felt it go. And I felt this unbelievable rush of, of confidence and engagement and presence. And I think it was to this day, it was probably my best performance ever. I felt fully connected to myself and, and the jet. And I was like, I really like this. And uh, I like being able to push myself well being assessed and observed and performing. And uh, yes, I, and so it, it did engage something in me. Oh, that is so, so, so. And so there's a, there's a difference, of course, between um, the side of, of performing, as you just mentioned, yourself versus a team. So tell me about how that transitioned to the Snowbirds. Yeah, so that's a great question because that's uh, people always ask me, you know, what do you prefer more, being a solo performer or being a team performer? Because I've done both several times. I've been part of the Patriots jet team for seven years, and I've been a solo F-86 pilot, and now a solo T-33 pilot, and it's a real hard thing to say. Some of it translates for sure. Uh, I love the performing aspect. I love being able to get out of the jet walk up to the fence line and greet, you know, the girls and boys and the, and the folks at the show and feel that energy and share that energy, that adrenaline that I've just experienced. Love that. Um, that part stays the same. There's something unique about being on a team and being so inexorably connected in the air uh, to the point you can almost sense what each other are going to do without even radio calls. You get that connected. And as everyone knows, you know, we're flying as close as four feet to each other. And so the level of trust, it's almost cliche to say, you know, there's implicit trust between you, but there is something beyond that I had the experience before. And I was a lucky enough guy to represent Canada at, uh, at a national level in some sporting. And it, didn't compare to what I felt on the snowbirds, that level of trust and connection, um, because the stakes are higher, perhaps. And I think the, for me personally, that level of being connected to myself and the jet, and then sharing that with a level of connection with everyone else on the team, sort of pushed it to a new level. So I found that to be equally as engaging for myself. Wow, I'm I'm gonna show that picture because I I love the the snowbirds. It's just so elegant. It's a beautiful performance. Well, I, I of course I'm biased. I think so as well. And and when I first joined the snowbirds, I was still I was 29, but I joined the, the snowbirds and turning 30, and so I was still kind of you know fighter pilot guy. And they used to say, "Oh, you guys are like an aerial ballet." I used to get slightly offended by that. And as I flew the snowbirds more and more, I go, you're absolutely right. That's exactly what we are. We're trying to put on a ballet and with moments of intensity and moments of grace and joy uh, mixed in. And so that's you know, what I like to think the snowbirds are. And so when I came back as the commander of the team, that's exactly, I would say, you know, we are a high energy aerial ballet. That's exactly what it is. Tell me about the aircraft that you flew for that. The, the Tudor, the Snowbird Tudor jet? Yeah. Yeah, so that, that is uh, the same aircraft that was used for pilot training for many years. And that uh, they've been, you know, uniquely adapted for the Snowbirds. They, you can sit in either seat, the, the dual controls, as all the Tudors were, but they're configured so you can be a PIC in the right seat or left seat. And if it's a great picture to have up because if you imagine it, if you're on the left side of the formation, you really want to be sitting in the right seat so that you're close to the other aircraft you're, you're referencing. And likewise, on the right side of the formation, you're sitting in the left seat. So and they're so not powered. They're not powered differently than the originals that you that you flew. No, the the, the tanks underneath, which could be used for fuel, extended range tanks, in the the sort of the school version of the jet. 
those are fitted with smaller tanks, but they're, they're smoke oil tanks. And so there's a smoke system, as you can see, there's smoke that comes out of the back. And then some cockpit differences and gear handle differences. But effectively, it's the same airplane that was used for the school. Wow, that is... Uh... That's that. That's really, really amazing. And and one of the things I always find fantastic about those performances is how many aircraft have to be coordinated uh, uh, in order to do it. The size of the team seems to dictate even more coordination. Yes, and I, as I've done, I've coached quite a few aerobatic teams and formation teams even now, and I'm one of the airshow evaluators for formations, large formations, and I say that it, you go two airplanes is formation, obviously. Um, doubling it to four is not just a linear scale. It's, it goes up exponentially, the complexity. You start adding airplanes beyond that, and the scale, the curve just keeps going up. And so going from you know, four to nine, there's just so many moving parts in the sky, and deconfliction, that it takes a lot. We'll, we'll have done, I can't remember the exact number, but hundreds of training missions before you even hit the season. And a lot of it's just sorting out the deconfliction and the synchronizing of all the airplanes because it, in some ways, the easy part is staying together once you learn how to do it. Um, it's when everybody splits apart and comes back together, it gets very complicated. Yeah. And, I, remember, uh, I remember years ago taking some, some uh, formation training uh, and, and it is all, those joins are, are really something to learn. Mm -hmm. Well, and particularly when you have to deconflict eight other airplanes, and uh, who's coming in first and uh, from a below, from below the outside, inside. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That must be un unbelievable. So tell me the transition that happened from that to as you started to evolve towards your, uh, I guess I'll call it your second professional career or phase. Well, yes, that I was... Uh, maybe a guilty of my own success i never thought i'd make a past lieutenant and uh, as i just kept going and i think this is one of my my sort of mantras for life as you keep sticking to things you truly enjoy you can't help but to show people you enjoy that and and if you and they, and they recognize that they, they want to sort of propel that path for you and so i found myself uh, as a lieutenant colonel coming out of the Snowbirds as the, the second time as the commander of the team and uh, put on a, a selection path to go become a general effectively. And uh, I'll call this deep select thing where they were picking a bunch of people in the Air Force and saying, okay, we're gonna groom a few of you to become generals and you know, one day one of you will run the Air Force kind of thing. And uh, you know, it was, it, a distinguished list. I wasn't one of the, the only ones. There was, you know, several of us picked, but I was very flattered. I was sent off to a staff college and a bunch of training and extra language training uh, in Canada. You have to be fully bilingual to be a, a general. And and again, sort of a victim of my own uh, success. I enjoyed what I was doing so much that I think I did well at it. And it promoted me out of the cockpit effectively. I was never really going to fly airplanes again. I was slated to become a base commander. And, and at the same time, I was um, you know, a really avid surfer. I, I did my staff college in Australia, and I was surfing a lot. I was actually voted the guy that had the most fun on staff college. I managed 40 <laughs> surfing one year. And I was sitting on a surfboard in Kulangata on one of our breaks, and I was thinking about all the TV productions that I've been involved in over the years as a performer, and I had some ideas for a TV show, and I'm like, I wonder. And one of the things, Jeff, I used to say to all the school visits and everything, I almost sound a cliche. I would come in and talk about, you know, biting into your dreams and, and really engaging with what truly makes you tick. And I, I like think, I think I served that more than just the lip service of it. But I started questioning myself. I'm like, yeah, you know, you kind of suck. You're you're not going to fly airplanes in the Air Force anymore, and you're kind of going down a path that you've never really described to yourself. And you really have always been interested in filmmaking as a child as well. And I'm like, you know what? Got this idea that you can't let go of. And I so I put my release in at 20 years on the cusp of effectively being a general 
and went out and created a TV show. Wow. So, so ha- tell me more about this because you don't obviously the average person doesn't uh, just quote create a TV show, but you're not the average person. So, <laughs> how did you put this together? Well, this is so. When I was on the Snowbirds the very first time, I met a gentleman, Mark Miller, who uh, was a prolific TV producer and an aviator. And he came out and did a documentary on the Snowbirds. And we had kept in touch over the years. And we met at uh, the ICAST convention, the Airshow convention, uh, sort of the year of my release. And I said, hey, I'm working, you know, with a couple other people. I'd done some productions with and running these ideas past them and I said I'm really interested in developing this TV series he says he almost went white and he goes I'm thinking of doing something very similar that's why I'm here at air at the airshow convention I because my TV series was centered around the airshow industry and I, he says well we need to talk and so he was a real producer I was just a guy with an idea at the time and uh with more ambition than education in that world. And uh, so partnered with him and he ushered this project to Discovery Canada. And uh, ultimately this show uh, was green lit as they say. And we went from idea to shooting this thing in just a matter of a year and uh, shot it over a couple of years, aired it in 2015. And uh, I think it went into 25, 35 different countries, not the United States for whatever reason. There was some crazy, this is the stuff I'm learning now as a producer is there's not only politics, there's all sorts of contractual things. And uh, so we never got the show aired down south where I really wanted it to air. And, uh, you know, the rest is history in that sense. Um, You know, I learned from the fire hose of TV producing, uh, because I ultimately trained as a director on it, and oh, by the way, I was one of the characters in it, so I wore a lot of hats. I was a busy cat for two or three years. So that's that's really how it is, but I will say that one of the worst things that can happen to a a producer is first-time success, because I thought, well, you have a great idea, and you just got to go talk to the right people, and the next thing you know, you're going to make this, but it doesn't work that way. It was just it was, you know, we caught lightning in a bottle in the, in the early stages of this and, and, uh, away it went. Oh man, that, that I'll tell you a lot of people, including myself are going to be searching for that. Uh, even though we are in the U S there's got to be a way to get to, to get it. <laughs> there, there must be, I think I've seen some stuff on YouTube and I know iTunes has it at it at, at one point. Um, so, yes. uh, this- Discovery Canada has a certainly has a track record in the history of aviation shows to some degree. There, there's been some good ones that have been out there, and and so that that must have been an amazing two to three years of of learning so many different things. Now you're you're transitioning and not only you're doing the air show stuff but producing, learning how to uh, how to act in it and, and all those other things. What was what was the process of coming up with that kind of script, making that thing happen? Well, this was where, um, you know, I learned to trust my instincts, even though I, you know, I had, I would say a little bit of imposter syndrome starting into it because a lot of people would turn to me, these veteran filmmakers and cinematographers that were working with us. We had multiple crews, um, you know, working all over the country and, and North America as we were following some acts in the U S as well with the Patriots. And, um, and looking for story ideas and the day-to-day running of things. And I learned that, you know, humans are innately storytellers. We just have that. And I think if you figure out how to tap into your own ability to tell a story, and if you're an expert on your field that you're discussing, then you can frame that in, in the right ways. And so I was able to figure that out early on. I think the challenge is for people that aren't experts in other things is how to tell a story about someone else. And that's what I've had to learn after the Airshow series. I've learned to tell other people's stories or other field stories because stories are stories at the end of the day and story structure. And when I've done an incredible amount of study formally and, and practically about storytelling, but to start in my own field, I really knew what the stories were. And then I learned how to tell them within the construct of the airshow industry. 
Um, but at the same time, I know everyone was sort of turning to me when the main producer wasn't there. And so you just, you have to come up with an answer. And so, okay, what's the other term? If not, that is fake it till you make it, right? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So you mentioned the, the Patriots. Let me bring it, uh, bring that up here. So t tell me about the Patriots. Yes. Yeah, so this, this was all part of this decision as well. Um, as I mentioned, I was not going to be flying airplanes in any appreciable way, perhaps a little bit as a, as a wing commander, base commander. And uh, other than that, I was never going to fly jets again. So about the time I was considering getting out, I knew a couple of the guys on the team. And in fact, we had, as the commander of the Snowbirds, I hosted the Patriots in Comox during our training camp because they were trying to grow from four to six jets and they were trying to understand large formations. And they said, can we come up and hang with you guys for a few days and just see how you do things? I said, yeah, sure, come on up. If there's a way we can help you guys, I think that's great. And they flew with us and they did our briefs and debriefs. Well, circle back a couple years later, they phoned me up and they said, you remember that conversation about us going to six ships? They said, well, we have a spot open if you're interested. It's like, dang it, now I'm going to be able to fly jets still, and I'm thinking about that. So that, that sweetened the, the deal for me to get out of the Air Force, because I could go fly. And in many ways, um, when you're uh, particularly a jet formation guy, like where do you use those skills in life? You never get to really do that again. And so this was the one unique rare opportunity to keep doing that because I loved being a jet formation pilot. And so I, I said, yes, of course, and uh, jumped on board with the team for so the you, next seven years. So you got to do that at the same time as, the, as, as you were producing or was that part of Airshow? It was. So the jet team was brought into the, the TV series. And so there were times I had to take one hat off and say, okay, I'm no longer producer scratch or director scratch. I'm now talent scratch, you know, being a character in this thing. I had to do that. So, so did you, you, did you create your own uh, reality TV drama? <laughs> no, the, the one thing I can say, and for the most part, you know, I, we've held really true to observational documentaries, the technical term where you just let, let it play out and cameras follow the story naturally. And so if you have good camera operators and good directors, they'll, they'll see the story. They don't need to say, Hey, can you go throw a wrench at that guy? Cause you <laughs> don't have going on. Like, I'm not flying your jet today. <laughs> no rigged pre-flights. Who put this no. can of beans in the intake? <laughs> yeah. No, we, uh, we avoided that to try to keep some authenticity to it. Yeah. We got accused of it, of course, like everyone, but really it was largely... Perhaps a little of the subtle subtle dignity of uh, the Canadians that, uh, that you kept that a little more civil. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. So, okay, so the series came out that we're all going to search for, and, and now you've transitioned that into uh, an entire career of, of acting and, and, and all sorts of things with aerial... Uh, uh, videography. So, so tell me more that transitions into where you are now and, and where you're going. Well, and, and it did, it was part of that transition. And I, I would say that I, I was also, you know, I, I think I mentioned, you know, that the air show flying really invigorated me as a performer to the point that I was thinking, okay, I enjoyed being in front of the camera on the series. I enjoyed it on the documentary. So I was part of when I was in the military. I'm going to explore this a little bit. So while I was even in the air force, I was, I joined some local theater groups and I did some plays and I just sort of found a new part of myself. I never knew uh, as a performer. And because I enjoyed public speaking and I learned that that was in effect a form of performing. And I said, okay, I'll take that to another level. And I, I took some formal acting training, in fact, years of it and worked with some of the, you know, the greatest acting coaches in, in Vancouver in the end when I was, when I moved there and I thought, okay, maybe we'll just see where fate takes me. 
Well, something interesting happened along the way of doing the Airshow series and then working on a few other series. I would say that if I was to say that the acting part of my experience base was the pure creative and the producing was the pure pragmatic. So if we go right brain, left brain on things, well, I found that directing was the marriage of the two. You had to creatively focus things. And so in the end, I never even thought about directing once in my life. Um, before this, even during this, I was sort of doing the, some of the directing in the air show series on the other characters, not when I was part of the team, um, that hmm, something interesting here, much like that surprise I had when I strapped on the F-18 in front of an air show for the first time, um, being a director for the first time uh, was a big surprise to me, something I really enjoyed. So I would say that's my favorite part of it. Certainly groveling for money and financial plans and all the the business and show business is not my favorite thing. It's a necessary evil, and some people love it. Um, the I do love the pure creative, but I think because I'm a left-right brain kind of person, I love the directing aspect of it. And so I've been pushing my career more that way, and, and that's allowed me to branch out into things like other TV shows or movies where they hire me to come and direct the flying scenes or choreograph the flying scenes. I get to use, you know, the pragmatic of putting the flying scenes safely together, but at the same time, putting a little creative twist on it, interpreting the script, approaching the, the director of the film or TV show and saying, here's how I, I see this coming together. What are your thoughts? And they go, I like that. Can you just direct this for me? And I'm like, yes, I certainly can. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. The, I, I I assume that means that there's a little more reality in, uh, in if we uh, look at any of the films than and programs that you're directly involved in as as pilots of course right we we lose that suspension of disbelief that's required for for all actors and all performances for a viewer to, to have it's hard for us as pilots of course to to uh, to, to keep that suspension of disbelief when things get a little wacky. Uh, in, in, in who's who's producing stuff, but I imagine folks like you, who are uh, when you're directing something, it's going to be a little more realistic for the rest of us. I sure hope so, and and that's one of my real goals, and what I sort of pushed myself to when I'm on. I said, within the the constraints of the budget and everything else, how real can I make this feel? And in the the realm of the process preposterous to the banal how what's the right needle in there um, to keep it entertaining and yet authentic and so that's what I do challenge myself with and you know I, I you will have very not heated but very serious creative discussions about that where the needle is on the preposterous scale to the banal scale and because yeah you could go shoot a really accurate boring thing or on the other side, you can shoot a really preposterous thing that people just gauge. Because I remember being a kid, maybe perhaps because I sort of had some affinity to aviation, I, I recognized those shows in the 80s when they took off in one airplane and a different airplane landed. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> that right. You know, so like at very least, if I could solve that piece, I'm like, you know, I'll challenge myself to that. I, uh, and that's what I found. But I've also, I think as much as their creative differences sometimes when you really approach a director or a production about it and you say here's where I think I can create this and it's it's always you, the, I think the line in Hollywood is always uh, it's not so much a no can't do this it's no but here's a solution for you or have you thought about this and so I always try to you know do the old make it make them think it's their idea trick <laughs> And, and sometimes, you know, I think, you know, one of the greatest uh, projects I've worked on is the Midway film with Roland Emmerich. And I think going into it, um, he's known for his post-apocalyptic big thrillers and, and spaceships and everything else. So I knew that we were going to be challenged. And the other aspect of it was he made a, a clear decision early that it was, there was going to be no practical flying because the intensity that he wanted was going to demand more out of the airplanes and these precious old warbirds than we could probably give. And so the challenge was how do we make it authentic as 
much as we can in the CG environment. So as you see the pictures come up, uh, you know, those very elaborate gimbal systems and the latest, absolutely latest, they call them technocranes, an extension arm that you see there and, and with a special head on it that moved in multiple axis to create um, a flow. And I think a lot of your viewers and yourself would attest to the fact that when we see CG aircraft, we often, there's something wrong with it. And often what it is is the weight of the airplane going through the sky is wrong. It's just, it's too nimble or it's just, doesn't have that sort of presence in the sky that we all know aviation to be. And that was one of the challenges I sort of put out for myself working with the CG team and the camera operators and all just to really create this sense of, of weight in the sky and movement. And I think we achieved that largely in midway because that's, um, you know, it's a CG movie for sure. But I think given some of the other sort of Warburg kind of CG movies that didn't do that, you can really notice it. And I, my argument to some directors are like, wow, only aviation nerds will know that. I'm like, wow, you'd be surprised. You know, people are so smart now and whether they know it or not, there's a thing, you know, we call it cognitive dissonance where your brain disconnects from what you're seeing. And I, I would argue that with really bad CG flight modeling, that even the uninitiated in aviation, they will, their brain will say, mm, that's not what I think it should look like. And they won't even know why that the scene doesn't feel right. And so I think more and more people want that authenticity as well. Um, because, you know, I think they know the viewer will just appreciate it, whether they know it or not. I think that that, that makes, uh, I think that's true. I think that makes a lot of sense, obviously, that, uh, people just inherently know even if it's a car i mean you look back at old old movies and you're like eh, you know that's <laughs> so <laughs> you can tell there's something i like the 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 term cognitive dissonance of of viewing that and and knowing that something something's wrong and if there's something that you can bring to the production to make that happen i think that makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. well and and given this was a, a large blockbuster budget film um, and Roland Emmerich is known for his, you know, eye-watering effects and, and visual stimulation in the, on the screen. That's what he does well. Um, you know, every once in a while we'd have a creative discussion about things, and he would just turn to me. He goes, "He's a German Austrian." He goes, "Scratch! I am not making a documentary. I'm making, you know." And so they're like, "Okay." And so I picked my <laughs> battle, right? And I was like, and I would say, "This one is a bit egregious." And, you know, and one song didn't win others. And, but I, I could sit back and say, in the collective whole, I went, I think I could be proud of that working in a Hollywood medium because we are not doing a documentary. We're doing entertainment to entertain everyone. Um, that, you know, it was, it was, it met my, my level of I, expectation. I think that's really, really important. It does. It, it has to do with that believability. It has to do with the comfort and immersion that the audience brings and is, is able to do that. I think when you have that with a movie, you can relax a little more and get involved in it a little more without something kind of screaming at you that you're sitting in a theater. Um, that is an example. Of course, that's one of the um, things that we've been hearing so many positive things and that, that uh, I saw in, in even the latest Top Gun movie. You know, Tom Cruise obviously is a pilot, cares about those things to some degree, and has yeah. brought at least some degree of reality uh, in the in the scenes, uh, at least some <laughs> that that help you over the edge. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Top Gun. I get a little bit of a tick because I was, you know, I was in the running to do some work on that film, right? And uh, I won't even call it my consolation prize to work on on Midway because they were shot around the same time. Just Top Gun was, the Midway came out just before the pandemic, if you remember, and got in that window. And then Top Gun was planned to be released and delayed a couple of years, obviously. And well, I would have uh, loved to have worked on Top Gun. And, and to your point, I truly respected the, the a lot of the practical flying they did, they did achieve there. And by the way, I saw my old Alma Mater, a lot of the Patriots uh, guys were 
doing some of the behind the scenes flying and the synergets of Patriots jet, of course. And uh, so I was really happy to see the team get that sort of recognition and, and what have you. But interestingly, I was talking about how everything relates, right? Everything in life, you just keep putting, stitching all the things you love together. And I mentioned that the directing was more energizing for me. As much as I love you know, choreographing a scene, being an aerial coordinator, being the safety pilot or what have you, my career path is definitely going more creative producing and directing. But that's what Midway gave me. So in many ways, not working on Top Gun opened up this door for me in and Roland Emmerich was so generous. He gave me a lot of creative control. And may I say, uncredited unofficially, I did. I worked with him. Of course, he was the main director, but helped direct a lot of the scenes with the actors. And, you know, you talk about the different pieces of life. I, you know, I did all that acting training. I know how actors think and I was able to train at a very high level and work with some amazing actors. And there were just a few scenes where early on where, you know, the actor was just trying to connect with a different aspect of the scene. And I would just throw a little suggestion out to the point where Roland once in a while, you would just hand me the director's mic and say, you do this scene. And, uh, and little old me walk out in front of 180, people on set and kind of do 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 and then that led to you know uh, directing more and more uh, sequences and that's where my where my career uh, is going anyways and so gave me the confidence that I can I can handle a big set when it's my move yeah. that is so so cool what a wonderful evolution to to do that and then one of the one of the other things that you sent me is the work that you're doing to change the way some things can be filmed and that includes this this aircraft here yeah so this is the the new project right so this is the one of greg collier's ace maker t33s and i've been you know very fortunate he approached me uh a couple years ago and i, I flew for him for a couple seasons just half a dozen shows just to enjoy and getting back in a you know a solo act and jet just loved it and this is an XRCF jet at, uh, that I was flying and so I had some affinity to it and my dad I saw him flying T33s and he quite likely flew this one and so I was pretty uh, keen to to do that and fly the jet with him uh, coming out of you know COVID and everything I had been developing something and a couple projects up here in Canada. One of them is really exciting. We're approaching the 100th anniversary of the Royal Canadian Air Force. And the organization approached me and said, hey, um, we know you're involved in this other project that relates with the RCAF. Um, could you consider expanding it to um, a 100th anniversary documentary? And I said, that would be really interesting, you know, just to add money. And uh, working with an organization that's helping the fundraising and the sponsorship for this, uh, we're not there yet, but it's it's really encouraging. And uh, as we've had some generous uh, inputs already, and it's allowed me to develop this platform and modify it to a film platform. And so to be able to fly with fighters and whatnot, I want to be able to go 400 knots, want to be able to do 5G. And so we're working with a company at GSS and uh, that have a really high level cutting edge aerial gimbal system. And it's, it's, a, it's a ball system. So it doesn't matter where it's turned and looked, it, it presents the same aerodynamic forces. And uh, so we've adapted one for the jet and some other camera mounts that are to be announced. And, uh, and to put a bit of a Canadian livery on it. If you see the classic, you know, the Ace Makers stripe with the yellow stripe on the on the, the fuselage there, putting that film strip on it and uh, branding it in this way for a couple years while we're shooting these projects. And then I'll keep it for other projects. But for me, you know, I, if you can own the capability, you're going to be able to make it more affordable. That's really the main motivation for this. And then I'll, I'll, obviously I'll be doing some commercial work with it as well. But the main motivation is to you know, service my own films. Basically, if I can do it, at uh, half the cost if I own the capability effectively. Right. I don't own the jet, I'm leasing the jet in a couple of years. 
that mm-hmm. that must be something that people don't you know don't normally think about about the challenges of being able to film uh, high quality air to air um uh you know at this at that kind of speed well and that's it it's uh you know it's a very capable airplane there's a reason T33s were used by i don't know 50 different air forces for 50 years it uh was a, and is a dependable Airframe is still the fastest straight wing jet ever designed. 505 knots, this jet would go, and it'll go there. That's wow. Like, you know, a lot of other airplanes that say it can go such and such speed, but you know, you have to be full power in a dive. This airplane, or once you get it up on step, uh, it'll sit at 400 knots and stay there all day. That's amazing. That's yeah. that's amazing. So uh, a couple other photos before we let you go, uh, that just kind of put put some of these things together to have you uh, take us through. Everyone can see these, uh, can see these photos. You've got, uh, so take me through a couple of these. Right, so there's, well, Snowbird uh, lead up on the top corner. The top right corner is the livery that my F-18 uh, was in during the CF-18 demo year. And uh, Patriots bottom left, you know, Snowbird's the right, T-Bird, that's the ace maker. Um, without the livery we just saw that I've been flying, but the one bottom center, this uh, airplane I got to fly for a little while and at the Vintage Wings um, Flying Museum at Gatineau, Quebec in Canada. And it's a, it was uh, a Golden Hawk Sabre. And I was going to say, I thought that was and, a Sabre. But <laughs> yeah, and that was an amazing airplane to fly. And it's, again, I'm going to sound almost cliche saying, you know, Hands down, just as an airplane to fly, that's been my favorite airplane to physically get in and fly. Of course, I love the mission with the F-18 and everything else, but I don't think there's an airplane or a jet that I've ever got in and felt so connected to so quickly. And I, I even say it to people to the point where, you know, trip two or three, I was doing rollover aerobatics and thing like I'd flown it all my life. It talked to me so well on those first two trips. And to the point I was like, okay, what am I missing here? And uh, such a great airplane. Yeah, I, I, I had always thought that the F-A-6 Sabre was a difficult plane to fly. Is that not the case? I didn't find it that way. The, you know, there's a couple of corners that'll bite you. It's, yeah. you know, it's not as friendly as the T-33 or the, the Tudor. But when, when you know those and you, you're mindful of those ones, I don't know. I found that airplane just settled into everything I wanted it to do. Isn't that cool? And then tell me about this. Right. So that's, you know, before the T-33 and whatnot, I did work with Wolf Air for a couple of years, did uh, flying all over North and someplace South America, filming airliners and different commercial projects working with this. It's an internal camera system with periscopes. And so this just happened to be an Air Canada commercial. We were filming up in the uh, Pacific Northwest and very rewarding being around these big airliners, you know, bringing me back to sort of my air to air refueling days and uh, making pretty pictures. And so it's fun to get on airplanes and you see the images that you and the team, you know, the cinematographers in the back and, and the other pilot um, I flew with, which was Kevin LaRosa. We, we flew together for years with, it was the, you know, the, the main guy with Top Gun, right? And oh. so he taught me a lot about this, this kind of flying and uh, making pretty pictures with it. So very cool chapter. That is so wonderful. Well, Scratch, thank you so, so much for joining us here on Social Flight Live. I know it is it is late where you are, but um, we're all grateful to hear, hear your amazing story and how it's taken you through so many different phases, but always kind of in the in this kind of upward mobile and and wandering path towards greatness it's it's very impressive well it's all this stuff's supposed to be fun in life right and i'm it's still smiling every day so that's the goal excellent all right well thank you so much again and i appreciate you coming on social play live no oh, my pleasure it was an honor thank you much thanks and to all of you Thank you, as always, for taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live as well. We sincerely appreciate it, and we're here to support you and general aviation. We'll be back next week with Beach 
2018 air show pilot and freight dog enthusiast Matt Yunkin. And he and his family stories are absolutely wonderful. I definitely encourage you to join us here next Tuesday, July 19th at 8 p.m. Then we are off for the week of Oshkosh. We'll be producing videos from the event at AirVenture. And again, if you are there at the show, find us and uh, you may snag some swag here from Social Flight. Always a fun time. Following that on Tuesday, August 2nd, Flight Helmet CEO GM Bell is going to be joining us. It's so cool. He has a complete museum, probably one of the only ones dedicated to flight helmets. We'll answer all sorts of questions having to do with that. We're here on August 9th with Aaron Fitzgerald of uh, with helicopter aerobatics, which is, again, a genre completely unto itself. And on the 16th, legendary NASA flight director and experimental aircraft builder and writer Paul Dye will be here on Social Flight Live. Until next time, I wish you all blue skies.